Brother Mark French, thank you for your prayer. Brother, I appreciated that. David, you too. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you, music team and congregation, for singing, singing well today. Amen? We're tuning our hearts, as the song says, to sing the grace of God. And we are privileged, even in these um, dog, hot, humid days of summer, uh, to have air conditioning and to be able to be inside um, out of the rain and to be able, most of all, to hear God's Word preached and sung and prayed uh, with, uh, by people who have prepared to do so in coming to this place. Amen? Are you thankful for that? I really am. I, I, more and more, um, especially when it, Brother Charles Cavanaugh came and preached last week and he he came to the pew, and I was getting him his mic on and all that, and he shook my hand, and he said, all I have to do today is preach, right? And I said, yes. And he said, I love that. I love that. And I said, I, I love it too, brother. And it is, um, it's not, doesn't just happen. People prepare, and they're praying, and they're, the Lord, His Spirit is moving through the week um, as brothers and sisters are coming so that we can feast together here in worship. If you would... You can turn in, your, in a pew Bible to page number 47 or follow along on the screen. And I'd like to read Exodus chapter 4. It is a long passage, and you did stand a lot during um, the song, so I will allow you to be seated for this. But if you would, follow along with me, and let's read Exodus chapter 4. It's somewhat of an eclectic passage um, on the face of things, but we're going to break it down, and I promise you... Uh, that the Lord is speaking. He has a central theme here He is doing and working out in Exodus chapter 4, and I think that you'll be edified, you'll be built up today. Exodus 4, Moses given powerful signs. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you again. The Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside of his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground." But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go, and I shall be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. And he said, O oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth 
and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, which you shall do, with which you shall do the signs. Verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had been there, seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word today, and may we be built up by that hearing and by the preaching. Some of you have a sports background. I've talked to many of you, and a lot of you have sports backgrounds, and so you'll understand my reference right away. But even if you didn't play sports, most of us will be familiar with the concept of a pre-game coach's speech, right? A coach gathers all of his players together and gives them this riveting spiel and they all get super pumped up and they charge out of the locker room onto the field or the court or wherever. And they play their hearts out inspired by the, these, these great words of the coach. I played football, amongst other things, but particularly football. And in high school, our coach always did this. He was actually pretty good at it. And before one game, he gave one of the best coaches pre-game talks I'd ever heard. He got us all super pumped up, and he had us all believing in ourselves, and we all together, yeah, we roared, and in excitement, and all got up, and we headed for the door, but the old locker room door, the janitor had decided that week needed a new fresh coat of paint, and so he put it, you know, I, I you know, this is the town color, right? He put it in that nice veneer of maroon back on that door once again. And, uh, and in the August heat of Indiana, it had swollen and gotten sticky. We were all wearing metal cleats on a smooth, finished concrete locker room floor, so it was like being on ice skates. You can see where I'm going here. We all, in our excitement, got up, we roared, and we charged towards that door that didn't blow open as expected, 
the guy in the front who was the quarterback because he was leading us out there is not the biggest guy on our team, and so he didn't have quite enough force to break the sticky paint loose, and he smashed into the door, and then several others smashed into him, and then a lineman who was one of our, uh, he was about 6'3", uh, 275, 280, uh, his cleats slipped out from underneath him, and he took out six guys behind him, and before we knew it, about about 40% of the team was on the ground. And the coach, when he could catch his breath from laughter, right, <laughs> finally just said, okay, never mind, step one, just get on the field. <laughs> just get on the field. When I read Exodus 3 and 4, I'm reminded of that story. God gives this amazing commission to Moses. He throws everything he has to impress, right? To show Moses, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He tells him exactly everything that's going to happen. He lights a bush on fire and it doesn't, doesn't burn and there's this booming voice. And at the beginning of chapter 4, you would think that Moses, as the supposed hero of this story, would be like, yeah, okay, let's do this. With God on my side, who could be against me? After all, the Bible refers to Moses as a great man of faith. This is an Egyptian-educated man. This is a man who is at the end, of, close to the end of his life. He's an older man. So for all intents and purposes, he should have all the tools and life experience he needs to take that great commissioning of God at the end of chapter 3 and say, let's go. We got this. But that isn't what happens. He struggles to even get going. The title of my sermon today is A Tale of Two Hard Hearts. Tale of Two Hard Hearts. We have two men about to go head-to-head, Moses and Pharaoh. Normally, we think in terms of Moses being the hero and Pharaoh being the villain, and that's partially right. Pharaoh is very villainous. But I'm going to contend to you this morning that these men are actually very much alike. They They were both raised in the royal house of Egypt, both leaders in their own right, Really, until this whole burning bush episode, they were both just kind of living out their lives without a lot of consideration for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They are similar, except for one major difference. One of their hearts, God softens, and the other's heart is allowed to remain hard. There is a hero in this story, but it isn't Moses, it's the Lord. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So let me walk through this passage with you, and you'll see what I mean. Moses, so there's three points. Moses has a hard heart. His hard heart was shown by his lack of faith, verses 1 through 17. His worldly encumbrance, verses 18 through 23. And his disobedience of clear scriptural commands, verses 24, 25, and 26. So God gives this Moses this, let's go, let's go, let's let's march through here. So God gives this amazing commissioning to Moses in chapter 3, and Moses responds with five clarifying statements or questions, kind of, really they're not questions, they're more objections couched in questioning. And as we go farther down the list of the five, you can see that they're less questions and more just outright 
objections. So the first one is, comes in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Exodus 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? The second question is Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And after that question is that really deep, commissioning, beautiful speech that God gives to Moses where he gives him the divine name and makes promise after promise after promise to fulfill the, the Abrahamic covenant. And then we get into our passage today where you think Moses would be all pumped up and ready to roll down on Egypt. But that isn't what happens. Question 3, Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And God responds and gives him three signs to do in the sight. Now this is important, to do in the sight of the people of Israel first and then to do in the sight of Pharaoh. The signs are turning the staff into a snake and taking it back up again. That's also part of the sign. Turning his hand leprous and healing it again and turning water from the Nile River into blood. These signs do have significance. The occult and magic and tricksters were a big part of Egyptian culture, but Moses was no magician and this was not sleight of hand. This is demonstrated by what does he do on the first sign? What's he do? He runs and hides like a, like a scared little schoolgirl from the snake, right? No offense to really tough little schoolgirls in here that would probably just grab the snake. If the Egyptians had a mascot, it was the cobra. It was on the headdress of Pharaoh. You've probably seen that in like movies and so forth. A sign of power and cunning and danger. This is a foreshadowing of Moses stretching out his hand and taking hold of this dangerous, seemingly powerful foe. When grabbed by the tail, it should have done what? Reeled around and bit him. But it didn't. It couldn't because it was being controlled by God. The God that Moses was supposed to trust. With this sign, God is demonstrating his power over Egypt and his using Moses as a tool to demonstrate that power over Egypt. And then you have the leprous hand. Pull it in, take it out, pull it in, take it out. The leprous hand is God's demonstrating his power even over the human flesh. So you see there's foreshadowing of the plagues going on here that's happening in these three signs. The Nile River is the center of life, agriculture, and economy for the Egyptians. It was a sacred part of their religion. And so turning, the turning of it into blood was God declaring his power over the false gods of the Egyptians and over the Egyptian way of life. It's a fascinating study. You could dig and dig and dig and we could talk and talk and talk about all the foreshadowing and all the little connections of what God was trying to do and the triggers it would have set off in the minds of the Egyptians and of the Israelites when they saw these things should have set off in the minds of the Egyptians when they saw these things. Still not good enough for Moses, though. Still not good enough. Fourth contention, Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord responds with one of my favorite lines in all the scriptures. 
I love this line. I get chill. You ever watch that movie, uh, Prince of Egypt? When, when uh, the Lord bellows this line at Moses, it gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. This is what the Lord said. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? It's almost like the end of Job, right? Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You would think after he said that to him, he'd be like, okay, all right, sorry. Because that's what Job does. My bad, sorry. Not what Moses does. Still not good enough. Hard heart. You ever ask a kid to clean the room and they start asking clarifying questions that they already know the answer to just as a stall tactic? That's what this old man is doing with God. It's really not good and not funny. It's, it's just rank disobedience is what Modus is doing. It's because his heart is hard. It's because he's scared. And it's, it, he doesn't actually believe that God will do the things that he's saying he's going to do. This man that is listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews is not much different than Pharaoh here. Because if he has faith in God, the God who is right in front of him, the God who is speaking to him, the God who is commissioning him, he surely does not show it here. Finally, in this last objection, he, finally, he just cuts the facade and, and really just says what he wants. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Just send someone else. And now God gets angry, he says. But even in his anger, even in his anger, he patiently promises Moses a helper in his brother Aaron. Do this first part. Do you see the kindness and the patience of the hero in this story? God is taking this hard-hearted man and softening him and calling him. Not because of anything that Moses is. And Moses doesn't get much better better as the passage continues on, but God continues his work. Look at the next part. Verse 18, Moses' hard heart is revealed by his worldly encumbrance. This is the second point. So you, you kind of, the points kind of follow the geography. So you've got Sinai, uh, Midian, and then you've got Egypt, right? So those are the three points, Sinai, Midian, Egypt. So now we're, he's, he's leaves Sinai, back to Midian, and Moses goes to his father-in-law and says to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now brothers, he's not evidently talking about, he's got one brother, Aaron, but he's not evidently talking about, he's, that word brother is kindred, kinfolk. Let me go see if my kindred are still alive. My study didn't lead me to any hard and fast conclusion about why Moses didn't just tell his father-in-law while he was going to Egypt, right? John Calvin's best stab at it was, men don't like to talk about spiritual things together. That was what John Calvin's commentary said. And I was like, come on, John. You got to give me more than that, man. I don't know. 
I don't know why he didn't just square with him and say, I just saw the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he commanded me to go back to Egypt, and I've got to go. He certainly would have had obligations to Jethro as not only a kinsman, but also his employer. The way that this verse is structured is that he is selling this to Jethro as a temporary visit to Egypt just to check on his kinfolk, basically. My main question is, what would he have done if Jethro said, no, no, you can't go. We've got too many sheep to take care of. I no, I you know, little Gershom's birthday party is coming up. I don't want to miss that. It leads me to think that there might be a, this might be another attempt at a stall tactic towards obedience on Moses' part. He has a life here, a job here. He's accustomed to a certain standard of living here. I'm not sure, but it would be in keeping with the character of Moses in this point in his life. But God leads Jethro to say what? Go in peace. Go. It's fine. Go do what you need to do. And this was, that was a, don't miss that. That's a big deal. I mean, Moses would have been a good hand to him, his daughter, his, his grandkids, this, this whole house, big entire part of his family leaving. And he doesn't have anything to say about it, but okay, go in peace. That's the Lord acting. And then this, Exodus 19 through 23, And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men... Who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Jethro lets him go. And the other thing that makes me think that Moses is perhaps stalling out again is because the Lord is giving another round of encouragement, saying the same thing. Come on, Moses. Come on. You've got this. You've got, you've got all the things you need. The men that were after you, they're dead. Those guys that wanted to kill you because you killed the Egyptian, gone. You have literally the power of God in your hand, the staff. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, then he tells him exactly what he's supposed to say. You're worried about your slowness of speech. Let me give you the script. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before, Moses, or excuse me, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart and he will not let the people go. When you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I, shall, and I will say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And the Lord just keeps pouring on this encouragement to Moses. I mean, he knows he's telling Moses to do something heavy here, but he just pours it on. The men who are after you are dead. You have the staff in your hand. The power of God is in your hand. He just keeps massaging this heart of Moses to soften it. And we're going to come back to verse 21 in a little bit. But for now, let's continue on the journey. They depart Midian and are on their way, and we have this weird little story about circumcision that reveals another piece of Moses' hard-heartedness. This is the third piece, his disobedience of clear commands from God. Verse 24, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then said that a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. There are 
What in the world is this about? There are major cultural things going on here that will help us interpret what is happening. First of all, let me say there are four places where the Hebrew word for him is used, and it is not defined whether that him is talking about Moses or Gershom, who is Moses' firstborn son. So, like, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sephora took a flint knife and touched uh, off her, excuse me, cut off her son's foreskin and touched, it says Moses' feet. That doesn't actually say Moses, it says him. So the ESV is making an inference here for us. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, so he let him alone. So all those hymns, and like I said, ESV, the editors of the ESV, they, they interpreted this as it talking about Moses. Good brothers disagree about this passage, and I, this is the way I would lean after studying and looking at it. This is what I think, just what I think. God was threatening to put Gershom to death. He was threatening to put Gershom to death because he had not been circumcised. Why? Why do I think that? First, the verse before, just before the section, God is telling Moses to tell the pagan, uncircumcised Egyptian king that if he doesn't let his firstborn son, Israel, go, then he's going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. So we're dealing in firstborn sons here, like right there, right above it. So I think that lends us to clue as to why this seemingly random traveling story pops up in the Scripture. God is sending a man, Moses, as a messenger to tell Pharaoh that because of his lack of regard for the Lord, God is going to kill his firstborn son. Yet the messenger Moses has lacked regard for the Lord in such a way that he hasn't even obeyed the most basic commandment from God to circumcise his son on the eighth day. His wife Zipporah is a Midianite who were also descendants of Abraham, but not through the son of promise, not through Isaac. So circumcision was a part of their culture, but very fascinating. Not until a man was betrothed to be married did he get circumcised, whereas the Hebrew people would have circumcised their sons at eight days old as a sign of the covenant with God. So, rather than obey what he knew was right and what he had been commanded of the Lord, Moses was deferring to the customs and culture of his wife, the Midianite. How do we know this? Because when Zipporah realizes that the life of her son is in danger, she knows exactly why the Lord is angry and exactly what obedience to Yahweh looks like. And she handles it quickly so that his life will be spared. And God relents in his mercy and spares Gershom. And in this way, it's a foreshadowing of the Passover, which is going to take place in Exodus chapter 12 here in a few weeks when we get to that point. To the end of the passage, the Lord just continues, the hero of our story. He just pours mercy on Moses. The Lord sends Aaron out to meet him. Remember, this is Aaron and Moses haven't seen each other in a really long time. They may not have left on great terms, but Moses and Aaron, they have this beautiful reunion. Moses, or Aaron kisses him, is just so excited to see him. Mercy. 
He tells Aaron, and Aaron what? Believes him. Mercy. They gather together the elders. Moses tells them what he experienced and does the signs that the Lord had given him. And all the people believe together and begin worshiping the Lord. And it's just as the Lord said it was going to be. The sheep know the sound of the shepherd's voice, and the people of God believe. And we end the chapter on a happy note. Right? It's a beautiful moment. So Moses has little faith. God encourages him through it. Moses is encumbered by traditions of his, of his family, uh, he, he, his way of life. Maybe, who knows, why is he dragging his feet in Midian? Don't know. But God encourages him and comforts him through this, massaging his hard heart to bring him to the place where he's now uh, he's, he's on the way. They have this son, and God could kill this son rightfully for his disobedience based upon the standards he's laying out for Pharaoh, and God relents and has mercy, and they bring him on the cusp of Egypt, and he throws, God allows these people to come around Moses, and they have this beautiful homecoming mo- moment with him, and it's just, it's just good, and God is just merciful to Moses over and over and over again in Exodus chapter 4. And the question I have in my head is why? Why? Why is he so merciful to this obstinate old man? I think we get some clue and we understand there's, there's deeper things going on here. Exodus chapter 4 verse 21. Let's bounce back to that real quick. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the signs that I put in your power, and this is the key phrase, but I will harden his heart. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Including this first reference, there are 19 instances in the next 10 chapters referring to the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. Nine of those are Yahweh hardening his heart, and 10 of them are Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Question for you. Does God need to act upon Pharaoh to turn him into a rebellious, wicked, hard-hearted sinner? Does he need to do a thing to make Pharaoh that? Pharaoh's doing a pretty good job all on his own. Has he done... Has he done these things on his own in a way that he is accountable to God, for his sins and for his wickedness? Yes. Yes. Romans 9 references Exodus chapter 9, which is just a few chapters ahead of where we're at. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Why did God choose to make hard-hearted Pharaoh a vessel of his wrath and hard-hearted Moses a vessel of his mercy? I don't know. It's above our pay grade. Read a couple more verses in Romans 9. Did God need Moses to deliver his people? No. Could have done that all on his own. Was there something special about Moses that made God look favorably upon him? 
after exegeting chapter 4, no. Was it because Moses was seeking after God and searching for the way that he could serve him out there in the desert of Midian? No. No. And we're not through with God being patient with Moses. Throughout Exodus, God's going to have to sustain this good work that he is beginning here. And really, he began in Moses' young life and is giving another installment here in Exodus chapter 4. And there will be time after time after time. We'll get another instance next chapter next week where you'll see the hard-heartedness of Moses and God being gracious and merciful. So why Moses? Because God loved him. And let me be more specific, because Christ loved him. Because Christ loved Moses. In a sermon on the love of Christ by John Witherspoon, a colonial pastor in America, he said this, All of the covenant mercies of God to man in our present fallen state are to be referred to the love of Christ as their price, their source, and their son. Yes, Moses had a purpose to fulfill in God's plan for his kingdom on earth, but he could just as easily have not stirred his heart for his kinsmen when he was a youth. God just as easily could have let him die, a complacent shepherd in the desert of Midian, deferring on important religious matters and raising of his son to his Midianite wife. But he did not let him do that. Why? Because Christ loved him. Not because he was lovely, but because Christ is lovely. Christian, in my hearing today, it is exactly the case for you as well. Your heart was as cold and hard as Pharaoh's. Or I, maybe I could say it was as cold and is as cold and hard as Moses' heart. But the Lord in his patience in His kindness, in His mercy, softened your heart. If you and your understanding of salvation have ev- are still maintaining that you are somehow a part of it, somehow co-authored it, somehow we're good enough, somehow we're humble enough, somehow respond in the right emotional moment that you are now saved because you collaborated with God on high, almighty, sovereign, maker of heaven and earth, and now you're saved. You're wrong. You're scripturally wrong. That's hard to swallow. But boy, once it goes down, you're free. Because it has absolutely nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. The hero of the story, of your story. We can take as much credit for our regeneration 
as a newborn baby can for its birth. We have no power. The Almighty God has saved us, and He is keeping us. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Christian, you bear that title not because you are lovely, but because Christ loves you. And just like Moses, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it to completion. Isn't that delightful? Isn't that freeing to think about? And you can learn from the mistakes of our older brother Moses here. Don't be like Moses in Exodus chapter 4. For you, give me some application, Pastor Kurt type people. When the Lord speaks, believe the promises. Promises like election and perseverance that we have in this text today. Don't allow yourself to be held up and encumbered in your sanctification using your family or your traditions as an excuse. Well, that's just the way my mom was, so that's how I am. No. No, don't do that. Believe the Word. And when the Word of God clearly says to do something, do it. And if it prohibits it, don't do it. But even when you fail, like Moses failed, the Lord is going to be right with you, encouraging you, not giving up on you, forgiving you. Why? Because He loves you. He loves you. We sing this song. We haven't sang it in a while. Maybe we'll sing it next week. How sweet and awe-filled. It says awful, but old language means like awe-filled. How sweet and awe-filled is the place. And it talks about, I think it's the third verse where it gets in there talking about how we've been invited to the feast and each of us cries with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? I mean, you know your sins. I know my sins. Why? Why, why me? Why you? It just makes it that much sweeter. It makes it that much more amazing and beautiful and delightful. And to you whose heart has been hard, I pray that God would not allow you to stay like Pharaoh because his fate will be your fate as well, death and destruction. If you have a loved one or a child or a friend or a coworker that has a hard heart, the first step in their salvation is not behavioral management. The first step is pleading with the Lord to save them. Let's just take a second. Take a second now and get in, the, get in your mind a name of a lost person. You know, you love, you want them to be saved. Put it on the tip of your tongue. Just 
Hold it there for a second. For your glory, Lord, save them. Soften their hard heart as only you can. And hear me, if you've been cold to the things of God and you are warned by any of this this morning, if you're feeling the massaging, the softening of your heart, make no mistake, it's because God is doing that in you. He is massaging, and you should listen, and you should follow, and you should obey, and you found a good place to do it, because there's a lot of other people here know the feeling. Christ is the hero, truly, of Exodus 4. And brothers and sisters, he's the hero of your story as well. Let's take a moment to reflect, and then we'll end in prayer.